Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 30, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of a book just released a few weeks ago, The God Who Fights For You, and uh, the book Spiritual Grit from last year, with two companion devotions to that little, that little one. One is for teenagers, and one is for adults. So you could get the main book, Spiritual Grit, and then continue that experience through a devotion, either for adults or teenagers. And I'm uh, the author of The Jesus-Centered Life and the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which has a direct connection to the series that we're doing this summer. One of the uh, eight or nine special features we added to The Jesus-Centered Bible was something we called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. I, I set out to figure out what uh, questions all human beings have in life and narrowed those down to nine questions. And then I did a sort of an experiment. I combed through the four Gospels trying to find how Jesus responded to each one of those nine questions. So I stopped whenever I saw him addressing one of those nine questions and wrote a little kind of a breakout essay about how he answered each question. So we decided to take those nine questions and make a summer series out of it. And we're marching through all nine of them. And we did take a little break. You might've noticed if you're a regular listener to the podcast, I was out for a couple of weeks. So Julia posted a couple of best of episodes of past paying ridiculous attention to Jesus episodes. So we had a couple of those the last two weeks and now we're back in the saddle again. And the question that's coming across the plate here is, what is love? What is love? Now, you couldn't really ask a bigger question than that. In fact, as I dug into this, I, was, uh, I, I realized how broad this is and how many aspects of our life this touches and how many different definitions and versions of love there, there is. And so, obviously, I need help with this issue. And so Becky Nader's back on the podcast today. So in the craziness of, there she is, the craziness of summer, we haven't really recorded for more than a month. So this, I can't wait to have a great discussion about what love is along with the Becky Nader. So, hey, Becky, maybe you could give us a little, uh, a little short summation of what you've been up to this summer so far. Well, July is a slower uh, month for me, so I have been spending a lot of time kind of disconnecting up in uh, Idaho at a beautiful lake um, house, just kind of like getting some R&R whenever there's time to escape. (laughs) So it's been a really uh, good time to just kind of disconnect and reconnect with myself and also just with Jesus and just thinking about the way forward, this fall is going to be really busy. It's already starting and probably starting from a couple weeks from now until probably Christmas, it's going to be really, really busy for us. But, um, but yeah, just get, trying to just take the fact that most um, people go on vacation at this time of year, they don't want to start new projects and going with it. So I have been yeah. getting some R&R. For That's sure. good. 
Well, obviously, Becky and I are different ages, different genders, different places along our journey in so many ways. And we each have our own perspective on what love is based on our life circumstances. And that's true for everybody. That's why this is such a, it's, it's a huge question, but it's also a micro question because the question is answered in micro ways in our own lives. That what is love is vastly different, a vastly different question for you right now in your journey than it is for me because of our very particular circumstances. But it is maybe the most basic question in life. Nothing captures our time and attention and maybe what you'd call our life strength the way love does. I found this little quote from Psychology Today that I thought kind of summed it all up. It says, love is as critical for your mind and body as oxygen. It's not negotiable. The more connected you are, the healthier you will be both physically and emotionally. The less connected you are, the more you are at risk, which is interesting. There's obviously lots of stuff relative to our relationships that affects our uh, physical and emotional health in life. We know this is true. That's why when um, when you're incarcerated and put in solitary confinement, it's akin to a death sentence. The longer you are in solitary confinement, because a person is not made to be completely isolated from relationship, it will in the end destroy you. So the question of whether solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment has come up again right now in our national conversation. Uh, is that really a form of torture? I think you could make a case for it that human beings are so in need of relationship, so in need of love, that to cut them off from that means to slowly kill them. It's like a relational cancer. So I have two daughters, um, both of them basically teenagers. The older one's about to turn 21. The younger one is 16. And both of them are in the middle of this, you know, you might call the teenage, teenage strata of what, what is love. They, they have not really uh, dated steadily any one person still in their lives. They're, and my older daughter um, has said as she's approaching dating relationships that in the back of her mind, she really doesn't want to date recreationally. She wants to only date uh, a guy that she could possibly see that down the line she might uh, you know, want to commit to. So that, that's kind of her gut feeling about whether she's going to date or not. My younger daughter is still trying to figure out, well, what, what does it even look like to have a dating relationship? Uh, who, do I, who do I say yes to? And what, is the, what does this kind of relationship involve? So they're at this very different stage of thinking about what love really is. And a lot of it is a, a kind of a rosy painted picture of what this all looks like from their vantage point because they're at the very beginning of it. So Becky, I was wondering, you know, uh, if you think back over the trajectory of your life, what, how is your perspective on what love really is and isn't? How has that changed since you were young, since you were a teenager uh, into this last season of your life? Well, as a teenager, I definitely traded out uh, boyfriends with the season of clothes styles changing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, mean, I had a lot of boyfriends and they came and they went. Um, but I think that ultimately, when I was a teenager, I was looking for someone who would put all of their attention on me, 100% um, of their attention, that they would only have eyes for me. I was looking for some sort of like 80s love song. Um, 
that would, you know, be the anthem in my heart. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think that the reality of what love looks like, especially as I I was married for um, eight years, um, and I saw that marriage through some really hard times that love um, was being committed and staying committed to somebody. Um, But it was also, um, it was about, I think that the difference that, that has really changed is that um, I used to think that love meant that that person had to make me happy and that loving them meant that I had to make them happy and whole. And um, now I realize that love means that I am responsible for my own happiness and wholeness and that they're responsible for their own happiness and wholeness. And that when you come together, you get to have an expanded experience of that, but that, commitment is really about um, two whole happy people coming together and sharing a life together and being um, responsible to one another for that commitment. You know, what's interesting about what you're saying, this just popped into my head. One of the iconic lines from one of the iconic uh, romantic comedies of all time uh, comes from Jerry Maguire, where at the, the pinnacle of that story is this sports agent who can't commit to anyone ends up committing to this woman that he uh, she has every reason to have rejected him because he's such a jerk but in the end they they come together and what what uh tom cruise who plays the title character jerry mcguire says to her at the end is in a very romantic you know dramatic way is you complete me and that line has been repeated over and over again it's used as sort of the standard for love and what I hear you saying, Becky, there is that that's actually one of the worst things you could say because what you're saying is I'm not whole and I need your part to make me whole, which A, puts yeah. a lot of pressure on the other. B, if you think about it, now this is not what you thought, I'm sure, when anyone watched that scene, but really that's an expression that a leech makes. A leech attaches to a host and gets what they don't have. And it, it's, it's a dangerous path to take to say that what love means is finding the person who completes me. That sets up the relationship to be sort of dysfunctionally dependent instead of people that are whole because of their relationship with Jesus joining together, not having to have something in that other person to make them complete. So I'm sure just saying this sounds very controversial to some people. Well, this. There's a, there's a, um, a, an interview that Will Smith did about his marriage with Jada. And he said on there, he said, I'm not responsible for making her, her happy. She's responsible for her own happiness and I'm responsible for my own happiness. And we come together and we live happily as a couple because of that. But I'm not, I don't take her happiness on is my responsibility. And, and the interviewer had said something along the lines to him. I can't remember what exactly the wording, but she had said something along, to, along the lines, wow, you just must be the perfect husband and, and do everything to make Jada happy because you two have been married and happily for so long. And he just shot right back at her and said, no, I'm not responsible for her happiness. She mm. is. That's, that's fascinating. Well, you know, you know, we've talked about how Love represents some of the deep, really the deepest hope we have in life. There, there's really nothing that supersedes the deepest desire to find, 
find a deep love and a committed love for a lifetime. Uh, it also, though, exposes us to tremendous vulnerability and pain at the same time. So love represents the pinnacle of what we hope for, but also the, the dungeon of, of our dashed dreams and our brokenness and the pain that we experience in life. It comes all from the same source. So when we were talking before we started recording today, Becky, you, you mentioned, you brought up a question. I thought, wow, that's a really good question. You said, is it possible to lose love? Can you love and then lose it? Is that part of what because we, we think, isn't love supposed to be permanent and unconditional? Well, how can you lose it then? Can you talk a little bit about how you've kind of wrestled through that question yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm a child of multiple divorces, and that's always hard on the kids. Uh, we, we pay the biggest price um, in divorce. And, um, and I, that was you know, kind of the reason. Like, well, I, I used to be in love with your mom, but I'm not anymore. And, you know, to me as a kid, it was like, well, what causes that? And I think that was always my deepest fear is like, am I going to cause, you know, my future spouse to fall out of love with me? And how do you keep that going? And, and then you bear all the responsibility. But then at the same time, I was married for eight years and I, I had to leave that commitment and that love. And so what does that say about my commitment? Let me just uh, jump into this here because I think this is relevant because I was talking about some of the research I did around this whole issue of what is love. And there's, there's, there's actually a science to it as well. I learned some things I didn't know about. Uh, there's a couple of Harvard psychiatry professors. They're a husband and wife sort of team, Richard Schwartz and Jacqueline Olds. And uh, they uh, were interviewed for a, a Harvard publication. And the focus was uh, on their research, which is into love. What, what have you learned about love? And here's some interesting stuff from their research. Love raises our cortisol levels, which is a, a, it's a stress hormone that has been shown to, uh, to suppress our immune function. It also turns on the neurotransmitter dopamine, which stimulates the brain's pleasure centers. You've probably heard of dopamine before. Um, it also drops serotonin. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, which, I think it's uh, serotonin. Serotonin, you're right. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Serotonin is is creates sort of an uh, obsession in us. Uh, so you can well, all of us have experienced sort of that obsession phase of love, where we can't stop thinking about the person. Our whole world revolves around them. Well, that's actually that's produced by a chemical that's part of this attraction process. Um, and, and they've, in their research, they discovered that love has its phases. This is the part that uh, I think I hadn't thought about before in just this way. But the phases of love is during the first year, the serotonin levels gradually return to normal. Um, so this, this obsessive phase of love slowly um, gets muted over the course of that first year of the relationship. And so that stupid, obsessive aspects of what that serotonin produces moderates. And then that year, that year uh, when that serotonin is slowly diminishing, that's followed by increases in another hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin, sorry. Boy, I'm just butchering every hormonal this name. This is totally not like you. Yeah, it's not. So uh, oxytocin. <laughs> This, this hormone helps cement bonds, it raises your immune function, it, uh, it confers a lot of health benefits, 
that we've discovered that married couples have that, that single people do not, including uh, married couples live longer and they have fewer strokes and fewer heart attacks and they're less depressed and they have higher survival rates from major surgery and cancer. But this second phase is, is more uh, where love morphs from this sort of obsessive phase to a committed phase. It's a very different function of love. And sometimes people want to hang on to that first year, that the feeling that you're always in that place of your first year of your relationship. But actually, our body and our, uh, wants to shift away from that into something that is more based on commitment. So when you're, uh, Becky, when you're talking about can you lose love, well, what these researchers are saying is you can lose some expressions of love. That's natural. The obsessive part of it diminishes, the commitment part uh, continues. And one question I think about is relative to can you lose love, if love then becomes a commitment, is it still love to decommit from something when it becomes harmful, destructive? Uh, th I mean, this is really your case. You decommitted mm -hmm. because of the destructive nature of your relationship. So did you quote unquote, lose love in that circumstance? Is that how you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I um, I definitely, there was, a, there was a time when I kept fighting and kept fighting until people had to come into my life and say, Becky, you can't lose your own life for this. Um, and it, it was part, partly, I think, because of being a child of divorce, I just absolutely refused to be divorced. I was like, I absolutely refuse this. And, and people had to say, you're okay. <laughs> there's times when there's a reason why we have this. Um, and too much is, has gone on here and you're free, but you know, for sure that I don't feel anything like when it, if, if love is a feeling it's gone. Um, and I, I don't feel, uh, the need to be committed. I don't, I don't feel anything. I don't feel anger. I don't feel resentment. Um, I've been spared of that, I think. But I also just, I don't feel um, any love for, for my ex-husband anymore. And that's, I know a lot of people on, on this podcast are divorced and have gone through that, or they've been a child of divorce. One of, one of those things. And I think it, it's hard to imagine that somebody that you loved so much and that you committed so much time and energy to that you could suddenly just flip the switch and not have, um, and not love that person anymore. Yeah. And that, uh, th this is where we, we get into the jungle that, uh, we we're trying to wrestle through well, what, what does love really mean then? Um, and we want the assurance that love is permanent and that love is all in. And, uh, we're going to get into how, how Jesus, um, engages with people around the issue of love what and he and how he defines what it really is in just a little bit to discover um maybe uh, find our way through the jungle uh a few a few other things that i thought were interesting around this issue uh did you know that uh, i this surprised me most people decide if they like someone within four minutes of meeting them. There's something about the, about the four minute mark that's, that all of these different researchers have discovered uh, um, in various ways that about the four minute mark is if, you, if you've pretty much decided by that time after first meeting somebody 
whether you really have a connection with that person or not. Does that surprise you, Becky, or does that seem about right? No, it doesn't, because I think my entire life I was taught that first impressions are everything, right? Like, that's why we, we have that saying. And um, and I also know just from my studies that, you know, 80% of communication is body language. Um, it's nonverbal communication. And I think you just get a sense from people of who they are within without even a lot of words having to be spoken. Yeah. The other thing that uh, a couple other things that I thought were interesting is that if you look into the eyes of someone you love um, for any length of time, your hearts, your heartbeats actually synchronize. Isn't wow. that funny? So your, your, your heart beats synchronize as you look into the eyes of someone that you, that you really love. And that uh, we know that people that we love can help us by their presence when we're going through something scary or hard or like we're heading into surgery, we want the people we love to be with us. But they've also discovered that if you just have a picture of someone you love with you, that also has an impact on your fear and your pain. Just looking at a picture of someone you love has an identifiable impact on your, on your pain. Um, a, a few other things I thought were interesting little tidbits People tend to end up with spouses who are, quote, unquote, equally socially desirable, meaning about the same level of attractiveness. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I wasn't sure what socially meant. Like, yeah. does that mean that you have the same, like, financial status or, like, you're in the same, like, class? <laughs> yeah. I think it, I, I, when, I, when I first read this, I thought, wow, my wife and I are in, like, the 1% then because anyone who looked at us together would say... <laughs> We were not equally socially desirable. <laughs> so, so, you know, maybe that was a grace of Jesus that he gave that to me. Um, here, here's something I think is very true just from experience. I've been married almost 30 years now. Couples or who are too similar to each other are not likely to last. It's the complementary relationship that lasts, not the sameness in the relationship that lasts. So I think that's really true. It also leads to lots of tensions. Yeah. Lots of conflict, lots of, uh, you know, sandpaper on sandpaper. It's the cause of a lot of misunderstandings and struggle. Well, they, say, they say opposites attract and then they attack. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So it's interesting that uh, God has so wired us to ultimately be drawn to people who are not just like us. And for the relationship to work best means that we are with someone who's not just like us. He's, he's basically injecting tension and conflict into the relationship as an important aspect of it, which is interesting. We'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit too. And then um, uh, the, the last thing that, uh, uh, that I have here on my list is something I've mentioned already, that that romantic love really only lasts about a year. It gives way then to this committed love. So really the committed love aspect of this is what uh, is I think what we're going to discover that Jesus has a lot to say about or a lot of ways to define what that committed love looks like. So let's explore that from four different angles through four different encounters now. The first one's from Matthew uh, chapter 11. So if you're not driving right now and you want to crack open that Jesus-centered Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 28. And this is just a little snippet. Um, it's, it's toward the end of the chapter 11 of Matthew. Just a little snippet of something Jesus throws out. This is one of the most tender things that Jesus ever says to a crowd. He said lots of tender things, but this is something he, he said to a, a crowd. And I, I, I just, there, there's so much 
tenderness in what he says. So starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So I have to make a point here about when he's talking about this, this language of take my yoke upon you. I did a bunch of research around uh, what being yoked means when I wrote Spiritual Grit. Uh, I, in fact, there's a whole chapter portion that really focuses on what does it mean to be yoked? Because this is language that is um, not drawn from our own life experience right now. Very few of us drive a team of oxen anymore. But back in the day, uh, it was a metaphor that was very commonly known for what happened when a young Jewish boy wanted to commit himself to a rabbi. Um, this was quite a prestigious process. If you could attach yourself to a rabbi and be trained by that rabbi, your, your life was kind of set. It's kind of maybe the way uh, we think now of getting into an Ivy League school or something like that, that, that it somehow promises you a successful life if you're able to do that. And that was true also of students who were called Talmuds as they tried to attach themselves to a rabbi. And the way they did this was they tried to, they, they had to convince a particular rabbi to take them on because this commitment was that this, the Talmud would leave his home, his family, his family business, his community, and go live with this rabbi. The rabbi would become his family. And this would be for another decade or so that this Talmud would be immersed in the life of his rabbi. So when uh, a Talmud successfully convinced a rabbi to take him on, the rabbi would formally say, please take my yoke upon you. It would be the formal offer or invitation for that young Talmud to come, come away from his family and his community and now live with the rabbi and be immersed in his presence. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's inviting us to attach ourselves to him as our rabbi and to immerse our life in his life. That's what he's really saying. And this was not an easy life for the Talmuds. This was a very demanding life that a lot was expected of them as they lived together with the rabbi. And yet Jesus says, um, uh, you'll find rest for your souls if you, if you take my yoke upon you. He says, my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So he's saying, immerse yourself in my presence, but it won't be like what you expect when you attach yourself to a, a rabbi in everyday life where you've, you're, you've got to gear up for some really hard work. He's saying, no, no, but when you attach yourself to me, um, that my yoke is easy to bear and the, and, uh, the burden I'm going to give you is light. He's inviting us into a particular kind of relationship. So the, I think the core definition of love is really embedded here in Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. He is offering to us and determined to give to us a kind of rest that allows us to fully relax, which I don't know about you, but how many times have you in your life felt fully relaxed? I mean, not just you're on vacation and you're relaxing because you're slowing down or you're taking a nap, or but this is a different kind of fully relaxed. It means inside the the fear and the work that you're going on in your soul to 
live your life, the things that you're trying to accomplish, the, th the pain you're trying to keep away, that, that all of that comes to rest and that at the deepest place, you're fully relaxed. I think most of us have never experienced sort of what I might call unadulterated love from someone in our life where you're fully accepted, fully, uh, fully enjoyed, fully seen for who you are. Uh, we long for that, but most of us don't experience that in life. So, so Becky, what, when we think about the, this relationship between what we think perfect love might look like and what perfect rest is, what, what is that relationship? When, when you're um, in a place of uh, unadulterated love, um, if we have ever experienced that, what is the relationship of that to rest at a kind of a fundamental level? How, how do the two seem connected to you? I, I think a lot of times when we are in relationships, we think that we have to change ourselves in order to be in that relationship, to be fully accepted or to be fully loved by that person. And I think that's a dangerous place. If someone's actually putting you in that position, then that's a red flag. And that you should feel like you can be fully and wholly yourself um, and that is Walter, by the way. He is deciding not to be quiet during this recording. <laughs> I don't know what his deal is, but he's not going to be quiet. He wants, he has things to say about this. He, he does. He's, so, and, and he's vocal about him. Yeah. He's very vocal. And we've tried several different ways to keep him quiet. It's not going to work. Um, so I think that when you're with somebody who loves you for who you are, faults and all, that's when you know that you can rest and just be yourself. Yeah, and I think uh, when we experience that, especially when people love us right in the midst of our brokenness and mess, when they seem to persevere with us, or when they seem to look past some of those things, when they um, are uh, sort of caught up in and captured by the core of who we are, so therefore they see past some of the brokenness and mess, there is something that is produced in us that's a kind of a rest. Maybe another way of saying the rest is safety, a deep sense of safety. Um, and I think that this is hard to find. Um, most people would, I think, would say they don't experience a deep sense of safety in their relationships. Um, and when you do experience that, you, because life is the way it is, we discover sometimes that that's more fragile than we thought it was, that it, will it persist? And so what's really important is how do we experience that from Jesus? We say in our churchy way that Jesus loves us unconditionally and he died for us on the cross and what more can he give and what more could he do to express his love for us? But we are still like Bono in um, the song, I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, he, he's still, he's wailing away. He's saying, I've experienced all this beauty from you, Jesus. I, I believe it all, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We still have this place in us that, that thinks, wow, how, how fragile is this really? Will this really last? Will Je does Jesus really love me? Or is that just a children's song? In your life, Becky, how have you experienced unadulterated love from Jesus when you think about how, how actually you taste and experience that from him? Can you think of a way that you have um, uh, recognized when he is loving you in an unadulterated way? 
Yeah, I think of times when, um, you know, he has just, he's gardened me so gently. Like he's mm. plucked my weeds in a way that if I had done it myself or if somebody else had done it for me would have been extremely painful. But he comes in and he just very gently pulls them out and it's not hard. Um, it, and, and it's like he knows it's there and he sees it. And he, it doesn't matter to him because he, he believes in the core of who I am and it's, it's worth it for him to keep, um, to keep pruning it back and to keep gardening um, around what I'm growing. And I feel it so gently and so lovingly and um, it makes it so that I don't feel like I have to hide from God. And I know a lot of people feel like they have to hide from God. Um, and I, I don't think that... I think when we stop hiding and we just put ourselves out there, he he'll come in and he'll just gently start to garden around us. If, if we give him permission to do that and there's just nothing more loving than that. Uh, I absolutely love the term you just used that how he's gardened me. I love that. That's going to stick with me for a long time. You know, when I think about, um, how, how I've experienced his love, the thing, first thing that popped out into my head was how he has named and renamed me. How, how when I'm struggling with my own brokenness and my own mess the most, what, I, what I've learned over the course of my life with him is that what I need the most is almost like a, a child sitting on the lap of his good father who comes to his father and says, can you tell me who I am again? Can you remind me who I really am? Because we lose our way. We forget who we really are. And this happens to me a lot. I, I, and I feel it welling up inside of me that I, I, I'm in need of Jesus to remind me of my name or to rename me, to re-describe me, how he sees me. And when I'm in those moments, I'm at my most rested place where I am experiencing how Jesus describes me, what he enjoys about me, and how he reminds me of who I really am. I find the deepest rest because I feel seen at my deepest place. And in being seen, when we say we want to be fully seen, that can be sounds scary because, wow, what if in being fully seen with a spotlight on all of my stuff, that's going to be uncomfortable. But the way Jesus fully sees us is different. When he fully sees, he looks at the beauty that has captured him from the beginning about each of us. I, I was away for two weeks and I was around a lot of people during those two weeks. I had two very different experiences. One, I was speaking at a, at a, a conference for student leaders at a camp setting. And the, and the other half of it was sort of a family reunion on my wife's side uh, with her, shall we say, very colorful family. And um, just being around a lot of people, I was also in Washington, D.C. with just a lot of tourists and I, and I often, when I was walking around or engaging with people, I would think Jesus is engaging with all of these people. These are not crowds to him. These are individuals. And each one of these people, he has found something beautiful that he delights in. And I was very challenged by that perspective because it's easy to be annoyed with people, to look down on people that are different from you to uh, hear somebody's story and say, I don't, really, I don't really even know if I like that person. And yet Jesus is there involving himself in their life, trying to reveal and surface the beauty that he sees in them. Um, 
he's his fundamental posture toward people is to draw out their beauty and that is what he's done in in my life and i think that's when i most feel his unadulterated love that helps me to relax there's another encounter in matthew chapter 16 uh this is uh just another short little burst verses 24 and 25 in Matthew 16. Let me read this to you. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. So in this case, uh, Becky, you were talking before about can we lose love? And you, and you said you've definitely lost the feeling of love. And here Jesus is, is uh, I think he's clearly saying the standard for love is not a feeling or even an earnest sentiment. Um, those things can go away. They can come and go. Uh, it's not even really a strong desire, I think he's saying here. It's, the, the standard for love is, is, is sort of embedded in this willing sacrifice of your life for another. Emphasis on the willing that I am choosing to go all in, in a willing sacrifice of my life for another's life. But the interesting thing about this is that uh, Jesus treats this sort of cross-carrying kind of love as a normal condition for following him. He doesn't treat this as extraordinary. He just treats this as the, the meat and potatoes of what it means to be in a love relationship with him and with others. He, and I, what's encouraging to me is that he will not capitulate to some low version of love here. He, he, he says the normal standard for love is giving up your life for another. That's by his definition, uh, the, the essence of going all in on behalf of your beloved. So uh, the fact that this is normal and this, he treats this as normal question is Becky, is this, how possible is this for broken people like us to live in the kind of love he's invited us into? How, how have you experienced this, the, the tension between your own brokenness and this standard that Jesus sets for going, for losing your life for another? Well, you know, I, I definitely think that when you're dating, you, you feel that kind of like physical, like emotional love and it's exciting. And, but then when you start to dial in and decide like, do I want to commit to loving this person? And it, it really is a choice. I think when you get to a certain point in a relationship, you have started to see the flaws. You've started to experience what it feels like when they see your flaws and how they decide to, to react to that um, and whether or not that's going to be something that's going to make you um, to bury you further in your shame or if it's going to be something that pulls you out of your shame. And, um, and I think it's, you should evaluate on both of those levels, um, not just, well, can I, I see their faults and can I, can I, sign on for their faults but also what happens when they see your faults are they are they a person that's going to sharpen and help you move out of that shame or are they going to push you further into it and once you work through those things i think you start to actually make that commitment like you know what this is somebody i'm going to choose like this is a choice i'm going to make and i think that one of the things that i will say about um you know i'm in a serious relationship and this time when I, when I was in my 20s and I decided to get married, I had no idea what kind of wife I was going to be, right? Like, I had no idea. I came from a broken home. I was not given the best examples. I had no idea. And one thing that I know now is the confidence that I feel about the kind of wife that I know that I am already. 
And I know the kind of wife that I will be in my next relationship. And in a lot of ways, that brings a lot of confidence to me about what I bring to the table. I know that I'm a good wife because I was a good wife. And I definitely have nothing to regret about my last marriage personally, um, about my actions there. I stand strongly on them. And I think that making that commitment to me, it, in my heart, at least I know what I bring to the table and I'm a little bit more prudent about um, the choices that I'm making on the other side. Um, I think mm -hmm. that because of my brokenness going into my last marriage, I didn't, have the, I didn't have a lot of confidence about myself and so I probably lowered my, um, my standards and I'm not gonna do that again. So mm -hmm. I think that when you make that choice, it's a big decision and I hope we have some teenagers listening to this today. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. And you know, what's, what's, what's interesting too, kind of embedded in what you're saying, and I think embedded in what Jesus is saying, he's not giving us a new should here, that you should lose your life, because that's my standard. So get to work, everyone. He's really saying that when you are captured past the romance, to a deeper place of passion, it produces a willingness and desire to commit to lay down your life. It becomes a normal part of your everyday life, not because you're disciplining yourself, but because you're compelled to, even though there is a high cost for it. It doesn't mean that you don't have to make decisions along the way about giving up your life, especially in the small nooks and crannies of our relationships where we could easily hide the fact that we're not. <laughs> and sometimes the giving up of our life is a hidden act of, of love that no one will ever see. And usually the things that no one will ever see, we have less motivation to do. But you find yourself doing it anyway when no one will see it. Um, you find yourself giving up your life anyway. Why? Are you afraid that to, to – uh, discover that you don't really love the person and so you work even harder to give up your life? Or have you been so captured that you find that it's like breathing to you to give up your life? This is the place, I think, where Jesus is inviting us to. And he's giving us our human relationships as sort of a laboratory, a metaphoric experience where we can work out what it, mean, what it looks like in, in, with other human beings as we are working it out with him because he does not want a transactional relationship any more than we do with each other. He wants something that is born out of our being captured by his beauty and giving up our life for him because it's the most natural consequence of the kind of relationship we have with him. In Matthew 18, let's read another one here. This is a parable, a short parable. It's called the parable of the lost sheep. I think we can find embedded in here another aspect of how Jesus defines love. So here's how the parable goes. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he'll rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Now, this little parable has had a huge life-changing impact on my life. Um, I, 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 I think I've related uh, uh, at least a bit of a story before from my life when I was at the Simply Jesus conference and um, my friend Brad Corrigan 
was there. He was introduced uh, after an evening session one night as the campfire guitar player. And Brad Corrigan is one third of the band Dispatch, which is one of the most popular independent bands of all time. And but a lot of people don't know about Dispatch. They and they don't even know the name Brad Corrigan. But thousands and thousands of people would pay a lot of money to be 10 feet away from Brad Corrigan at a campfire and listen to him play guitar and sing. But most of the people at this conference had no idea who he was. And there I am sitting 10 feet away from him at the campfire, listening to the beauty coming out of his guitar and his voice. And most people were just talking with each other. They weren't paying attention to him. Now, eventually they did. They caught on that, wow, there's something about this guy. He has real talent. <laughs> but it didn't matter to Brad. It, he did not change his demeanor or what he was doing, whether people were paying attention to him or not. He didn't demand that they know who he was. He never told them that he was part of one of the biggest bands in the world. He didn't do any of that. He just sang. And when I finally had to leave the campfire that night and walk across the dark, uh, the dark field over to my car, Jesus stopped me in my tracks and said, I don't want you to ever forget what happened here tonight. And I asked him, what, what? And he took me to this parable, the parable of the lost sheep. And he said, what I was trying to say in that parable is that I care for the ones, the individuals. I never look at people and see a crowd. I only see individuals. And when you see an individual, you will leave the 99 safe on the hillside and you will go after the one who needs you. You, you won't care about the mathematics here. Shouldn't you just protect the 99? Let that one go away. He wandered away anyway. Doesn't he deserve to get whatever he's gotten? And Jesus says, no, I pursue. I go after the one. He'll, he'd, you'd think that he'd sacrifice that sort of thick-headed rebel for the sake of making sure that the mass of the sheep who really obeyed him stay protected, except he replaces that with his own standard for love. He's re I think he's revealing what really drives his passion at his core. It's not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Um, he goes after the one. So I, I think Satan's challenge to God over and over again we see through scripture is something like, well, why do you lower yourself to love these ugly, disgusting little creatures that you, you created? Why are you doing that? They're disgusting. Now, Satan has no respect for God's love for us. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't see why it's why he would ever love people that are as messed up and ugly as we are. And the question is, how does Jesus answer that challenge? Becky, how do you think Jesus answers that challenge? The one that Satan brings into his lap over and over again. Why would you love these disgusting little creatures? Um, how, how do you think Jesus answers that either because by what he does or says? He's all in for your strengths and he's all in for your weaknesses. And I think when we encounter people in relationships, friendships, partnerships, marriage, whatever, we go in all in for their strengths and then we encounter their weakness, weaknesses and we're all out. Hmm. And I think I've seen this over and over again, not just in, in romantic relationships, but also in business relationships where people get all in for somebody and then all of a sudden they get closer to that person. They experience some weakness and they say, oh, well, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for for perfection and nothing less. And I think that that's just an unloving way to encounter any human being. Yeah, you could say it's a, you could say unloving or un-Jesus-ish. Un yeah. That's not the way that he operates and it's not the way the kingdom of God operates either. 
you can understand then why when we're promised a life in heaven in the kingdom of God with Jesus, and sometimes it seems like that promise doesn't seem all that attractive. You mean I'm going to be singing worship songs forever or what, what am I going to be doing? But we don't quite understand the enormity of being in the very presence of a great beauty and what that will produce in us, what, what we will want to express when we're in the presence of that and not just experiencing that beauty, but tasting of it and being uh, related to out of that beauty. I don't think we quite have a, a sense of how overwhelming that, that sense is going to be. When we talk about being fully relaxed, being fully seen for both of the, the strengths and our weaknesses, as you pointed out there, Becky, if you could really experience what a love felt like that saw every aspect of your weakness and still delighted in you, how free would that make you? I think, I think the, the extraordinary things that we allowed ourselves to risk would expand exponentially if we felt the kind of love that said, I see every little thing there and boy, do I delight in you. It would create this kind of fundamental safety, I think, in us. And Jesus um, says, uh, his response, I think, back to Satan over and over again is, um, you, you don't see what I see. You, you don't see what I see, and you never will, because you are bound by your own. The, the, the way that you see my creation as ugly is the way you see yourself. You are looking through your own filter, your own standard. You're not seeing things through my standard. We, there's the one last, one last little encounter I wanted to throw out there fits exactly in this little discussion. It's from Matthew 20. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's verses 1 through 16. It's where Jesus tells a parable about um, a master coming into town and hiring some people to work in his fields at the beginning of the day, and he keeps going back to town throughout the day and hiring people to, to work in his field, even at the end of the day. And at the end, he, uh, he pays everyone for their work, starting with the last people he hired. He gives them a full day's wage. So the people that were hired earlier than those people expect to get more than a full day's wage, even though that's what they agreed to. And then when they don't get that, they protest because it doesn't seem fair. And I think this gets at to some of what you were saying, Becky, that fairness, our expectations that here's what I signed up for. Um, oh, I didn't see that kind of massive brokenness that you were hiding from me or that was all, always there, but like a cancer, but I couldn't see it. I didn't see that. So this now isn't fair. I didn't sign up for this. So Jesus here is directly addressing something that is really volatile for us. We demand fairness in our relationship. And we'll, in, in human relationships, we'll go to war to make sure that everything is fair. A lot of the rattling around of, of uh, sabers in today's world is about different countries asserting fairness around their relationships. So, so here Jesus tells a parable that its core has a great unfairness. There's grace embedded in this, and grace is wholly unfair. It's also the common currency of the kingdom of God. It's shockingly generous if you think about what Jesus is saying in this parable. So the questions that we'll end up end with here is, Becky, is what, why do you think that we're so obsessed with fairness, and what role does it play in our love for others? 
what's a, what pops into your head? Well, we're, we're a numbers-based transactional society and, and it, and that helps us not be a chaotic society, right? Like it also, you know, we have to have, um, you know, we, we, we live in a democracy and we have rules and regulations and that is the opposite of anarchy, essentially. So we don't want to live in anarchy, so we have to have transactions, but, but the kingdom of, of God doesn't have transactions. And I don't think that love really can exist for very long if it's completely based on transactions. If you're keeping a little tab in your head of every time you took out the trash and your spouse didn't, or if you're keeping a little tab in your head of, you know, um, every time that you had to get up in the middle of the night or whatever it is in your relationship, and then you start to carry this big debt that the other person can never pay off, that's just not, it, it doesn't work. And transactions don't exist with Jesus. We keep we actually, our debt is so high that he said, you could never pay it back. I had to pay it for you. And that's uh -oh. the ultimate um, riddance of transaction. And, and so um, a loving relationship doesn't keep a transactional record. And if it does, it has to keep laying it down on the cross. Yeah, I think you just said something really beautiful that, that um, the cross represents an obliteration of the transaction. Because on that level, there's no possible way for the transaction to happen. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough value to pay for what we owe. So he's chosen permanently to make the relationship not about the transaction but by his act on the cross. And uh, that's such a powerful thing. When you, when you, if you think back to the whole Jerry Maguire thing, you complete me. That is, in essence, a transaction. You're saying, you're giving me the part that I don't have. I need you to keep giving that. I need you to keep giving me the part I don't have. And when you stop giving me the part I don't have, the transaction's off. Now, now uh, the, the, deal's, uh, the deal's off because I need to feel whole. And if you're not going to make me feel whole, then we, maybe we need to move on now. That is, at its core, a transaction. It gets back to what you were saying early on in the podcast about wholeness and where does the wholeness come from? This is what Jesus is inviting us into, to be whole with him so that we can uh, live with others in relationship as a whole person instead of a leech, <laughs> essentially. This is one of the things where I, I, I'd say I'm, I get into the most trouble in my own marriage relationship is when I slide into this thinking where I have to have something from my wife in order to feel whole. And she feels demanded upon. She feels uh, suffocated by that. She, she maybe wouldn't be able to notice it right away, but eventually she does. And, and when I um, uh, stop and, and ask Jesus to shine a light on what's going on inside of me, it's always you have slipped into demanding something to, to maintain your wholeness. And she can't give that to you. It's a form of idolatry. And Jesus says, idolatry will kill you. you know, when, he, when Jesus says, worship one God, me, alone, it's really for our own best good that he says that. He wants us to worship only him because when we, quote unquote, worship another, we are immediately demanding something from them. We want something from them to fulfill us. So... I, I find it fascinating that Jesus emphasizes outwardly grace, um, this over generous approach to our relationships. 
much more than the Old Testament does. There's definitely a season of how God deals with his people. And that season changes when Jesus, when Jesus arrives on the scene, where he introduces a radical form of generous grace into our relationship with God. Um, we are, uh, the Old Testament people looked forward to this life of grace, and we live it now. So let's wrap up by just talking just briefly, what does it mean to embrace this sort of Jesus love and grow in it? One, one of the things I, I scribbled down in a note for myself is, don't try this at home. It means like, uh, if you're gonna just do this in your own strength, in your own will, in your own discipline, it ain't gonna happen. You, will, you won't even last one day working this hard. I lived the first part of my young adult life working hard every day to try to give others this kind of love, and I just bankrupted myself. I emptied myself, and I became a poser in the process because it's not possible to live that way, and so I would hide some of my real feelings behind a facade. So don't try this at home means that we have to abide in Jesus um, for this kind of love to flow out of us. Abiding in him means attaching ourselves to him over and over again throughout the day, 50 times a day if you have to. I'm just reconnecting to you, Jesus. I'm, put, I'm sticking my branch in your vine again. I need what's flowing through you. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he wasn't kidding. And we, and we don't just abide in him one time and, and then we're there. Uh, for me, I abide and I abide again and I abide again. I just come back to it. Jesus, I'm coming back to you again. I'm coming back to you. I need your life flowing through me. Anything about that, uh, Becky, that particularly sticks out for your life right now? Yeah, I just, you know, and if you're going to be able to give anything, you have to go, you have to be filled up from the source first. And, um, and, and this is something that I've had to learn over and over in my life is that I am a doer and I just go, go, go. And whenever I start to do that too much, God usually trips me in some way to be like, Hey, I'm over here and I'm the one who fills you up and you're about to get in big trouble if you keep going at this pace. That's good. I think also losing your life, to use the Jesus language, for me means studying the people I love and offering them love in their language, not my language. We, when we are really losing our life, we're, we're not simply defaulting to the way that we express love or appreciate love. We're studying the other to understand what expresses love to them. That's, that's a way of, of losing our life. And then the last thing I scribbled down was that I think that love's focus in the end is for the highest good for the other, not so much the highest comfort level. This is something that's taken me a long time to sink into in my own relationship. What is the highest good for my wife? And how am I pursuing that in her life? Not simply comfort in the moment. Uh, there's such a, a pressure to capitulate to whatever's needed in the moment. What do you think about that, Becky? Yeah, I, when, <laughs> I, I think that when you are all in for love, you're all in for seeing what the best version of, of your partner is. And, um, and that means that when they're, when they're doubting that they can go somewhere and you see that they can, that you're cheering them on and that you're showing them, you're, you're, you're allowing them to borrow the belief that sometimes they don't have in themselves. Um, and it also means that you are, you're, you're, you're pretty, 
protecting them from um, taking on something that's not going to be good for them. Like you're constantly thinking about like, what is the best, like what is Jesus's biggest plan for this person's life and how do I help them get there? And that it's not, it's not about you and what your plans are and how you can mold their life to be about what you want to do with your life. That both people have callings on their life and that both people have um, things that Jesus is asking for them to do. And I think a lot of times in relationship, um, I don't, you know, sometimes it's on the male side or the female side. One person maybe is a little bit more ambitious. And so that other person kind of wraps themselves around uh, partnering to help the other person just be the only person who gets to go anywhere. And I think that what I have really realized is that both people have a path and, and a um, purpose and that it's about both people being able to go and pursue that together. And, um, and that's, that means compromise. It means that sometimes you're the one staying at home and doing the dishes so that the other person can go out and, and you're, you're balancing those priorities together. Um, and my involvement with the More Than Me movement women has shown me over and over again how much... Um, one of the reasons why women in general are not out there pursuing their plan is because they don't have any room in their life and, and just encouraging them to go and talk to their husbands and say, I have something in my heart I want to do too, but it means that I need you to stay home one night a week and, yeah. and do the dinner. And yeah. And, and, and in the most, in the most raw version of that, that's simply uh, normally laying down your life for the other because your, your heart loves their heart. And this is what Jesus is doing in our lives right now. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out the Jesus-Centered Bible, which is the source for all stories of love, because it is the story of love. Uh, and the reason we've added these features throughout the Bible to point you to Jesus is to point to you to the, the wellspring of love. Uh, and, and in all of its uh, raw forms that Jesus exhibits. So, and you can find out more about what we've talked about today on the podcast by going to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. This is a podcast from Lifetree. You could subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be talking to you again next week and in a, maybe hopefully in a couple of weeks. The Becky Nader will be back with us again as well. So we'll talk next time. <laughs>